Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sustainable Energy Asia podcast. I'm Yeo. And I'm Ben. Greetings from Bali, Indonesia. Today, we're receiving Trista Chen, partner at ERN, on the subject of ESG due diligence. Yes, Trista is leading the m due diligence practice at ERM in Asia. We're going to discuss about the definition of ESG, the ESG due diligence process, topics in relation to climate finance, and specific case studies. Before we move on with the show, we would appreciate if you could take the time to rate and comment on the show. It helps listeners to find us. Thanks, and on with the show. Hi, Chisa. Welcome to the show. Hello. Could you introduce yourselves and uh, share experience working in the ESG industry in China and Singapore as well? Sure. So thank you for having me. Lovely day today. So my name is Trista Chen. I'm a partner with CRM. I look after our regional finance sector service within the, the firm. So how do I get to join the industry, which is very popular related to ESG? I think that goes back right after I finished grad school. At the time, I had a degree of environmental management, environmental science. And I think many, many years ago, the topic of ESG was very much focusing on the topic of environmental health and safety related to the risk and compliance management. So that's when I first entered the industry as a young consultant. And through the years, I think the attention of ESG gets focused very much in a very different context nowadays when we talk about our topic when I first started. So I think this is where I reflect the journey of my more than 15 years consultancy in the topic. Just to continue, could you talk more about ERM and your current role as a partner within ERM? Yeah. So ERM is the largest pure facility consultancy firm in the world. We have more than 15 years of history. Currently, ERM has location in more than 40 countries, 160 plus offices globally. In Asia Pacific, we have also been here for more than 30 years. ERM started, as our name probably indicated, more on the environmental side, but gradually expanded to the full sustainability consultancy supporting corporate clients or finance institutes through their investment or product cycle. So we cover service, anything from what I do most of the time in the transaction advisory related to M&A to supporting clients in, for example, their safety performance transformation, their asset retirement, their corporate sustainability and climate change strategy or down to the technical greenhouse gas accounting and all the way down to some emerging topics, for example, digital solutions, you name it. And so I think this is very unique in terms of ERM's position, what we call the boots to boardroom, because we actually have experience on the ground working with clients at the front line in their operating facilities, in their manufacturing size, all the way up to the boardroom, advising the C-squeeze of the strategic position that they should take in the emerging climate change and ESG expectations that we have from wider expectations. As you just mentioned, I think more and more companies recently are responding to their sustainability ambitions to build business resilience or to support transition to a low carbon future. So a recent discussion that you quite heated have been focused on the ESG priorities. First, could you share with us your understanding of ESG and maybe briefly define it? Yeah. So... It is a very good question because until now, there is no universal definition of ESG, what it stands for. 
So when we look at that, I think four or five years ago, mainly this is driven from the private equity, the private investors need of managing their investment risk associated with environmental social governance. And of course, this topic is much broader now and, and cover a wide range of issues. For example, the, what is happening now in the COP15 biodiversity to the COP27 related to climate change. Those would be all the topics for under the ESG. And I think the reason where there is no single definition of what ESG should cover is also because this is a unique topic that should be linked to the company's operation itself. So it's up to them to define what would be the relevant material topics that they need to incorporate into the consideration to do with their business strategy, to do with their operation. So wisely, we define the E, anything to do with the environment, the broader atmosphere, climate change, biodiversity, water, to the more traditional environmental topics like pollutant control, air emission, wastewater, noise, all the way down to environmental legacy issue, which is soil and groundwater contamination. And that in the mid-70s drive the start of the whole industry due to the carcinogenic pollutants that have caused the health impact on the individuals due to the pollutants. So this is where trace back to where the whole industry started. And when it comes to S, uh, obviously it's a social topic, anything to do with human being. So the labor, the DE&I topics, the stakeholder engagement community, also down to the occupational health and safety of the individuals that is working at a company. So this is how we define the S. And governance, as the name says, that is ability, the company, the structure, the board, or the management system that they have to set up to have overarching ability to manage that. And depending on the industry, the G topics also can be extended to the supply chain value, value chain management. For example, in the renewable energy, the solar industry, that we would now be talking quite a lot of how the company source their raw materials from the supplier, and then it's linking to some of the S topic, which is human rights in the manufacturer of the supplier. So I would say the topics is a fluent list that should be revisited regularly and then defined as the internal operation and also external expectation changes. It's true that the definition of the has always been kind of like a, quite a topical issue and uh, discussed widely. The Economist has published a few months ago an article which was a bit controversial where they argue that essentially we should replace ESG by E but only standing not for environment but for emissions and they put forward three critics of ESG finance. First being that there's a wide array of objectives and there is no clear guide to make any trade-off. Second, that ESG finance claim that actually good behavior can be lucrative, while actually in practice, it is really profitable to socialize costs such as pollution with a society. And third, that there's not a really a good measurement for ESG items. Essentially, they're arguing we should really switch that for emissions due to the imminent climate crisis that we're facing, which is the biggest challenge. What is your take on the criticism that was put forward yeah. by the article? I do think when the article came out, it catch a lot of attention, especially in the US climate now, a lot of backlash about ESG investing. I personally do think the three comments that the article raised is quite accurate in the current climate related to ESG. But I don't think the ESG should be narrowed down to emission because like I explained before that it is such a broad you know, range of topics that are very much relevant. And part of the charm of ESG is the lack of definition in a way that is up to the company to articulate why this one is important 
and give them the chance to position themselves and drive the action towards performance that they think is necessary. It's a little bit twisted is often when we have a set of expectations, we often were raised to the question, how should we perform and how should we be evaluated so that we know how we're doing? Where I think ESG, a lot of the time that it actually should spend on focusing why this topic is relevant to me, how should I demonstrate my action that is driving to the performance and measurement should come to the last, which is the record. It shouldn't be overtaking the emphasis on understanding what would be the relevant ESG topic that company should consider. Emission, at the end of the day, it is fundamentally important, but we can't forget that there are other competing priorities within our society. So it's not like if we can only solve the climate change million dollar or billion dollar question that the civilization will move forward. I don't think so. There are emerging paramount topics that we face now together. And it's hard to say that one is more important than the other. And then the ESG can be reduced down to one word because that is the most important topic. I do think that article points out good attention for people to realize that in the lack of consistency, there are things that we urgently need to perform to do together, but it doesn't mean that that should give us the opportunity to scale back and only focus on one single topic. Because even for climate change, if you look at the loss and damage funding that got through in COP27, it's a huge topic linking to human rights linked to the social topics, right? So you can see that a lot of those topics are interlinked with each other. And sadly, or, or excitingly, depending on how you look at that, we have no single solution to say that we can only solve one problem at a time, but it has to be a collaboration effort with attention from various bodies to drive the changes together. And I think this is where ESG has the beauty and has ability to address that. As you just mentioned, the key to the ESG is the result. We can see how the company is conducting or demonstrate their environmental and sustainability ambitions. In order to evaluate those ESG practice, the result and outcomes of it, I think a due diligence would do the work. Could you please run us through a typical ESG due diligence process? Uh, sure. For example, for M&A deal. Yeah, sure. And yeah, maybe give us a brief introduction on the length of the process, for example, the skills required, main attention areas, and the, maybe the typical challenges you might face. Sure. That is the question linking to the core, the heart of what I've been practicing in my whole consultancy life as a due diligence practitioner. So I'd like to say, first of all, the need of ESG due diligence is not new. It is that companies has been conducting due diligence prior to their investment decisions for many, many years. Like I mentioned, when I first started my career, the focus topics were perhaps more on the environmental health and safety side related to the compliance and risk. But major corporates already have what they call the 100-day plan, which is still very common toolkit that different type of investor looking at post deal to integrate the due diligence finding into the deal decision-making contractual negotiation, SPA with the sell side, buy side, and then moving to post-integration. Because often we say that in the beauty of M&A, post-deal perhaps is more critical than the part due in the due diligence because that's when the changes can happen. But what's new with ESG due diligence is the result of the private capital that need to integrate ESG into their investment decision-making. 
And hence, it's very much focusing on that when this topic that is been off from the more traditional environmental health and safety and social due diligence that we've seen on the market from the client device for more than decades. So the topic of ESG, again, it is quite hard to define. So the way we look at that, first of all, has to be linked to the transaction. What is the context of the transaction? What, what does the client need? What kind of request they have? For example, a private capital versus a private credit versus a venture capital that have DFI investment. The way we structure the due diligence will be slightly different because the nature of the client is different. Secondly, we look at the due dynamic. What would be the likely assets that we will have with the target company? Is it a public listed company? Is it an auction deal? Is it a private company? Will we be able to have some full access to the target, including management interview, peer review side visit, or is a very limited time that is allowed to facilitate transaction? So all of that is not unfamiliar in the M&A world. It's just that when it comes to the ESG of those situations, that is the target company that we encountered, they may not have a dedicated team in-house that look after ESG. Hence that we want to break it down to the nature of the operation and how they may structure themselves internally in corresponding for us to get the necessary information that we need to complete due diligence. The fun part of ESG due diligence now is that there is no one-size-fits-all approach. We will structure the scope, the approach, and then the deliverable outcome depending on the client's need and transaction and see what's the best, how will be the best fit. And also one change that we noticed from the market comparing to when we support the client five or seven years ago is that we used to cover ESG or EHS due diligence with cybersec almost 100% on the ground. So for example, you have a photo company that you want to invest. They have operation in, in 10, 15 countries with facility, 20 facility. To the degree that is possible, we will have boots on the ground to actually visit those manufacturing facilities because this is how you can understand the actual environmental health and safety and labor social performance on the ground and how the performance are corresponding to if there is a corporate program in place for them to govern that. But what has changed, and also I think COVID facilitated that, is the virtual working environment that one way we were forced to adapt because of COVID. The other way is the type of transaction that's running now. Previously, we have an inside-out approach that we get to see the facilities to interview frontline workers, the shop managers, to actually understand how the performance of ESG are happening and then comparing to the corporate performance. But often now, the due diligence are an outside approach. We would get information from the public domains, what we call the external review. Now this can be facilitated by digital solutions, AI. So I think this is where the transformation of the ESG DD has happened. How challenging is it to gather information? Because I was discussing with someone who was doing scope three management for mm -hmm. the company and what she was saying was in a lot of targets or suppliers they have, they actually wouldn't have any yes. information about that. So for scope three, they will use industry average to do the estimation. Yes. What is the quality of the data that you can gather from the target? It's a very good question. So specifically when it comes to scope three engine. I think I will step back and have a conversation with the client. What's the purpose of doing that? Mm -hmm. So if it's a private capital, they often would have their fund level commitment that they have to know or their commitment to their investors and saying that what is the baseline emission that they have to go into before the investment decision and how that may 
affect the overall carbon intensity of the portfolio they're holding, right? Mm. But in the environment, in particular in Asia Pacific, where there are lacks of regulatory contact to have companies to even report scope one and two, scope three is an extremely challenging topic. And the second thing is that across the Asian countries, there is no consistent greenhouse gas methodology. So we will be looking at, for example, Korea, Japan, China, they will use different methodology comparing to the international greenhouse gas accounting standard. So all of those will pose the challenge in the field solutions context or in, in any context, I think, as a fund that wants to get their portfolio company's emission situation. So that gets back to the conversation with the client, understanding what is the objective, how much time, how in-depth conversation that we will be able to have with the target company, how comfortable are they with using not primary, which is proxy data to do the estimation, and then understanding the impact of such calculations on their decision-making. So it should be an informed conversation the client to say, right, I hear you that in this contact, the chance of me getting qualitative data is very limited. The result is likely over-conserved data, which may not be supportive in the due decision-making or even drive the value creation opportunity moving forward. So I would recommend the clients, for example, is first of all, understand whether the target company in fact have their greenhouse gas emission management capability first. The system, is that in place? Do they focus or do they even cover scope one and two um, in line with the host country regulatory requirement first? And then looking at what would be the opportunity to bring them into a higher level of expectation, including scope three. Rather than jumping and say that scope one, two, three should be included because this is the trend, this is buzzword. It's not not doable. It's just that the client needs to accept the limitation that such approach will bring to them. And then they can find this limitation still be useful for due decision. My personal take on due diligence is to do what is necessary and suitable and contributing to the deal rather than doing that for the signal. Yeah, it's, it's even more strategic level decision on scope free just to manage and see how in the supply chain they can do some discussion yes. and integrate that. So it's, I guess it will be on a longer time frame than yes. only due diligence yes. stage yes. for sure. After in that case, I mean, scope free is not the only topic that we use similar approach. Mm-hmm. We can often do a deep dive after the SPA is signed before closing. So if this is a very important topic to the investors that they need to do before the transaction is completed, then we often can do it post due diligence, post signing, prior to closing, mm. right? I think fans for your very familiar product finance where this which is commonly adopted and used. Mm. And a lot of those, what we talk about now in the ESG due diligence are not new in the very mature M&A world. It's just the topics that hit the list of the priority will swap because the attention of the investor, the corporate client changes. And then like, scope three was not a topic maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. And now we see a rising more that company will focus on that. And there are also the other topics, for example, product stewardship, which is a license to, to sell. And with the emerging regulatory bodies in Asia Pacific and European Union that is tied to that, and also with the introduction of product carbon, which needs the life cycle assessment to complete. Those kind of discussions will be very difficult to complete in depth in the due solution timeframe. I would do it in design. So there are different ways of structuring this in helping the clients to get to 
what they need to, and ultimately it's objective. What does the client want and how is the due diligence approach? Topics are able to facilitate that and help them to drive the transaction moving forward. Now I want to move to another subject, which is on ESG standards. And I think the discussion is also a bit related to how we define ESG that we yeah. discuss, because there's a fluidity of standards. Personally, I've read a lot of ERM reports on project finance deals. Yeah. So I know like on project finance, we'll be talking about the equator principles, the IFC, environmental and social standard, etc. In the due diligence work that you're performing, could you talk us about the major standards that you would be referring to and maybe discuss about what are the area of focus of these standards? Sure. So it's like an alphabet when it comes to ESG now, standard and framework. Yeah. Fundamentally, how we will structure the due diligence scope and approach is linked to the nature of the transaction. So if there is a client's investor, then is a pure private capital background and their LP do not have particular requests on their ESG performance demonstration, then we may often go to the basic, which is the host country regulations as applicable, and then a SASB. Why the SASB? Because it's more link to the sector and focus on the mature topics so we are able to evaluate what would be the most valuable topics and that's the standards that we use. But on the other hand, if the context of an infrastructure fund in Asia and Pacific, similar to the product finance that Yaren works quite a lot with the bank, those would be the situations that we would use a broader topics, for example, the standard like ISC performance standard, which is still one of the most comprehensive environmental, social, and health and safety performance standard is widely accepted, in particular in non-OECD countries in Asia Pacific. And the reason of that is, first of all, the nature of those projects are linking to larger infrastructure, checking grant development or project already in operation that will be subject to a higher risk of biodiversity, labor, higher risk of climate change. And IFC performance standards provide a very good set of guidance in, in saying that if the company having the management system in place, having done the necessary study to identify those risks and mitigate those risks. So when we talk about standards, they are actually not a list of, for example, emission standards that you will say whether the pollutant discharge is linking to emitting the regulatory compliance or not, but is really looking at what would be the topic the company should look at and what would be the management system that they should have in play to manage that. So this is a typical way that we will approach this topic. When it comes to how to perform, the approach of any ESG due diligence are pretty standardized. We will normally do a management interview, document review, including documents provided by the company themselves, information that we can find from a public domain. And then we will also do a preferably side visit to actually observe this performance on the ground and then how is it aligned with the company set up to do. And then we can also extend this to be a more tech-enabled approach, for example, infrastructure project we can leverage microsatellite to be dispatched to the location where the project is and observe whether there's any environment and social and safety concern to do with the project location. And this is extremely powerful if you have highway project with linear assets because the site expands such a broad area that it will be very difficult even though you are boots on the ground to observe that. Um, and nowadays, when we look at ESD diligence, we also would do benchmarking because companies want to know how their target performance comparing with respect to some of the peers. 
some of the customers. But it is important to know that when we do benchmarking, it is not actually benchmark and the actual performance, but the, the maturity, the engagement. Because now I think one of the challenges of ESG is that there may be a disconnect between what the company does and what the company's performance actually is. So we are not relying only on what they disclose, but we are trying to find evidence of how they perform based on the actual data. So the benchmarking is looking at, for example, are the company disclosing the relevant ESG factors aligned with the peer expectation, customer expectation, and how those disclosure is linking to their actual performance and whether there is a gap at the company. This often in the private sector, the company may be doing quite well, but they're not disclosing it. So the gap is on the disclosure and not on improving the performance and vice versa. So this is how we would be using different standards and different approach when we perform ESG due diligence. Yeah, so essentially it is non-one-size-fits-all and everything is really tailored to the target and the activity. Yeah, okay, so that's really interesting. Now I want to discuss more about climate finance. So financial institutions, whether investment funds or banks, have a major role to play in the energy transition to allocate funds into the relevant area to allow us to mitigate the uh, the temperature increase below two degrees. And over the past years, there has been a lot of changes in the industry. I think it would be quite interesting if you could let us know how that has impacted the approach that financial institutions, I'm thinking about funds or banks, are approaching their due diligence. Sure. So definitely we noticed the change from the client, the expectation, starting from including the topic of climate change. So when we talk about climate change, there are a few topics that we need to understand. One is the existing climate risk to do with the, the investment opportunity. This can be at the corporate level and also at the asset level. So we are basically evaluating what would be the current risk that the company will inherit with the transaction. And that can be including in the greenhouse gas baseline, the scope one and two, and, and scope three in a really ideal case. This can include the physical climate change risk with the current already happening hazard. And this can be the existing laws and regulations, for example, in the European Union with the emission trading scheme for that is very much applied to certain sector of industries with the carbon tax kind of framework. So this is the one scope that we will look at. The second portion will be the forward-looking. What would be the forecast that the climate risk will increase or not based on reliable data? And this is more looking into greenhouse gas, the opportunity for the company to reduce their carbon footprint through what kind of measures in place. The physical climate change risk is that whether the extreme climate hazard will increase based on the, for example, the IPCC data, some of the assets may be considered as undesirable or even becoming stranded asset. And then when it comes to the transition risk, which is very much aligned to TCFD with the market technology regulation and reputation changes that whether there will be increasing transitional risk that companies should be aware of. So the way we look at climate change due diligence is very much focusing on what the clients desire outcome, what do they want to know in the set of those topics. And again, linked to the due dynamic, the limitations, the specific time, the specific setup that we have talked about in due diligence, that's how the best to structure this. But when it comes to the transaction linking back to ISC performance standard or equity principle advice, like the banks, some of the EP banks, 
we will need to refer to the EP4's latest requirement of doing a climate change risk assessment should certain criteria be met. So that's at the project level, it will emit more than 3,000 tons of carbon dioxide, then the CCRA will need to be triggered as part of the conditions. We see more and more clients are integrating this for the funds, for private capitals. In Asia Pacific, the most common questions will be physical risk, because I think most are worried that whether those assets become stranded assets, especially if the infrastructure funds, then is the inherent carbon intensity with the scope one and two. And those would be the most visible topics to be included in a due diligence, given the current context with the short time frame. But I'm sure with the awareness increase with the company, with the society's attention on scope three and transitional risk, those topics will be included in the Asian due diligence in the near future. The company's ability and maturity to answer those questions in the DD will be picking up. And that's when a meaningful conversation can happen to expand topics. Now let's move on to a more practical example. Yeah, I noticed that in the recent publication coordinated by Singapore Venture and Private Capital Association, you shared a case study of the ESGDD of an EU cosmetic company in Greater China. Could you talk about this case and highlight the key findings and where the DD created value for the investor? Yeah, sure. Well, that was a very interesting case. I think it was around two years ago when we first approached by this private capital. They were in the very short time frame that they have to close the investment before the target company closed the last round of fundraising before IPO. Often we get approached by clients. They will say that you have two weeks to complete. So time is definitely a luxury commodity. At the time we were approached, we were told that it is a private owned company. They do not own any manufacturing facility. They are just starting their R&D activity and they mostly rely on, if not all, suppliers on the market to manufacture their products, the packaging material of the product and also the assembly. So this is setting the context and also it's a small company that is fairly new. So it's sort of like a startup account and then become very popular because of the buying power of the consumer in, in the greater China and drive the demand. So with all that, we set the, the scope of the due diligence that the client will be able to provide us with very limited access to the company. And because the nature of the company, they wouldn't have a large, sophisticated team to have dedicated ESG personnel for us to respond to that. So you can imagine it's outside-in kind of approach that we gather information from the public domain in a set of ESG topics and we follow um, SAS performance standard and then local applicable China regulation and also applicable regulation where the company export their products to because this is where the product stewardship kicks in in the cosmetic industry. And when we structure the scope, it has come to our attention that Despite it is a light manufacturing industry, some of the clients will say, well, the ESG risk will be very limited because they actually do not manufacture what could possibly go wrong. We, we realize that because of the raw material that is used in the cosmetic industry, often those raw material will come with high ESG risk. For example, all the ladies would like to put on eyeshadows and this shiny glittering in the holiday season that comes from a very specific mineral called the mica. And mica itself has huge social risk, especially to do with mining activity in India. And then mm. also there is the usage of some of the sheer butter or palm oil, but the way that they were planted, harvested, will have high ESG risk. So this is when an apparent ESG risk suddenly arise because of the nature of its business, even though it may not sit with the manufacturing activity itself, 
but because of the industry comes with that. And also the second half of the business that is the e-commerce. And yes. I think for us, those come from China. We know there's term called 996, which means that you'll start with <laughs> nine to nine, you work six hours a day. Yeah. Um, and that is a, a social issue to do with uh, overtime and also with ergonomics to do with staff in retention, staff engagement. So we're expecting it come from high channel rate, but we also want to know how it come engage your staff from recruitment to retention and then also the grievance process. And the third nature is that because it's e-commerce and cosmetic, the way of they sell will be through online platform. We want to know whether there is any false advertisement commitment. We were juggling how the company is advertising their product and whether there's a false commitment or potential discriminating issue that related. And last but not least, because the company sell the products to consumers online, how are the company engaging with their customers? Is there any agreements, complaints, and how are the company following on that? So those would be the key topics that we look at, which was as a result of the conversation with the client, rather than we come in with a set of checklists and saying that these are the things you need to check. So the key finding is that because the company is very new as a very mm. lean structure, it has the attention to address certain of the ESG topics, but it's not a systematic way to strategize that in a way that they can communicate that in terms of policy management system framework or one set of KPI they track. And then the second part is that because it's a such a fast happening industry, they were focusing more on how to access the customer, but have not incorporated some of the ESG and say raw material procurement process to the supplier. And mm. also because they are relatively small comparing to some of the key players on the market, they may not feel that they have the leverage to tell the supplier that we would need you to procure or we, we select you based on those ESG considerations. So this is apparent risk and also the challenge how they will be able to scale it up and more leverage to the supplier in incorporating some of those ESG considerations that is very key to their new investors. The last part is that because the company is eyeing for IPO, so yeah. when it comes to the value creation, we all know that in different stock exchange, in particular in the Asian market like Hong Kong, China, or Singapore, there are a set of ESG disclosure requirements. So what we call this is how the company can be ESG disclosure ready pre-IPO. Again, I like to emphasize that when we talk about ESG performance, it's not just to meet the disclosure requirement, checking the box, but aligning their strategy, their approach to meet those expectations. So we were mapping out what would be their expectation if they go listed in certain stock exchange market, and then how the company can align their current performance to bridge the gap to be pre-IPO ready. Apart from the customer's perspective in terms of ESG due diligence in this case study, I think another important part in this whole procedure is the suppliers. Yeah. So as you mentioned, it's a asset light company without production line. The potential material risks are strongly associated with the suppliers. In a way, company supply chain management ability, they could also impact the investor's reputation. Yes. The challenges brought along by the debts and the breadth of the commodity used in this supply chain, plus tracing and monitoring of those various tiers of the production. Yeah. Those all would increase the difficulty of the evaluation. Could you describe how generally you are performing such due diligence to deal with those challenges, sure. especially in terms of the supply chain? Sure. Yeah. So when we come to about supply chain, we have many years of experience helping corporate clients yeah. to do supply audit. So again, the topic is not new to us, to ERM or to most of the consultants, because we have done 
the similar topics in a different context with different objectives. So when we first looking at supply chain due diligence, so including the topic of supply chain in the ESGDD, we leverage what our compliance and assurance team have done for the corporate major clients, for example, the, the Apple's, the Microsoft, BASF, and different supply management program that is very mature on the market into the implementation of the supply chain to be put in the ESGDD. And because of the due dynamic that we've spoken about quite extensively so far, we will want to know how the company has the awareness. First of all, are they aware of the need to manage supplier beyond quality, cost, and time and delivery schedule, but whether there is a ESG component there. And then second part is that to what extent they have included this and tracking monitoring and then down to the supplier selection. And in particular for companies, for targets, if their product is relying on the handful of supplier, we would ideally ask the deal team to provide us the top supplier list. And then we will pick a few depending on the strategic importance. So let's say this is a sole supply on single product. We will sample a few suppliers, try to request whether we can at least get a management interview with the supply team. If not, then we will use external available information or supply audit reports, or sometimes the supplier provides products to more than one customer. So whether the other customer supply audit report will be available. So this is how we would normally do that. You are in the industry for such a long time. So when you started your career in sustainability, what is the one thing you wish you had known back then? And what is the thing that you find the most unexpected today? This might be inspiring for the young consultant today. Good question. When I wanted to study environment, I still remember some of my family relatives like, oh, why did you go to such a... Mm. Sad industry that's not popular. I go to IT and banking. So I think one thing I wish I had known is that the belief of sustainability is going to hit the mainstream. And then in order to hit the mainstream, one key element is to how to engage your audience. So for the business context of decision making, this C-suite. So a lot of us that started in the environment consultancy, we had a science and engineering background. So you can imagine a lot of studies focusing on analytical scale problem solving, but not much on the software people communication. So I think as a consultant going through that journey, reflecting the sustainability topic, which inevitably have to be integrated in any business discussion, it needs the audience and the audience are the people. So you need to know how the best to communicate with the people to bring your idea across the board. I think that's one thing I wish I had known back then. The thing that I find the most unexpected is how popular, how this has become a mainstream. Almost everybody is talking about that. And people from cross industry wants to join the sustainability because they actually care about it and driving the changes. So I'm very glad to see the industry has transformed substantially and including the talents that we're able to attract from all industry joining us because of passion and the seated need of raising for sustainability for all of us. Yep. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Shista. Thank you.